Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today is going to be a different kind of episode on Travels Through Time. After years of talking about other people's books, I now have the opportunity to talk about my own one for a change. It's called Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness, Britain and the American Dream, and it's newly out in the UK and the USA. The book is a British prehistory of the American Revolution, covering the years 1740 to 1776, which of course was the year when the Declaration of Independence was signed and the United States of America came into being. Now, people have often likened Travels Through Time to a walking tour that stops off at moments in the past. Well, today we have for you a walking tour proper. The other day, I met up with my friend, the author Sarah Bakewell, to make a little tour of three locations near Fleet Street in London. Think of each of our locations as one of our usual scenes. My idea was to find three places that were connected with characters in my book. Stopping off at them, I wanted to tell Sarah about their connections with the foundation of the United States. The first of our subjects is a man called William Strawn. He was a brilliant printer, businessman, politician, and friend to great Georgian writers like Tobias Smollett, Edward Gibbon, David Hume, and Adam Smith. He was a great example of the self-made man, arriving in London with nothing in the 1730s and building an absolute fortune before he died in 1785. To tell Sarah more about William Strawn, and particularly to tell her about his links with America and his complicated friendship with Benjamin Franklin, we sat down for a pint in one of London's famous pubs, the Old Cheshire Cheese. Cheers. So, where are we? Well, one story or one floor. Story sounds a bit too grand. One floor underground, just off Fleet Street, in the Cheshire Cheese Pub, which is one of London's great pubs. It dates back to, I think, the mid 17th century, around the time of the Great Fire of London. It's been going ever since. The beer is still quite good. Yeah, I think we're actually. If it sounds a bit echoey, the reason for that is we're in. I suppose it's a cellar, cellar. isn't it? Mm. It's like there's bricks painted white. There's lots of archways. Um, it's a fun place to be. But the reason I brought you down here, Sarah, is not just for the uh, <laughs> the drink and, and and the bricks. It's because we are um, very very close to a really really interesting home, and that's the home and the first business of William Strawn, who was. A printer who, 250 years ago, more than 250 years ago, in uh, in the 1740s, started off his professional life here, just on the neighbouring alleyway, which is called Wine Office Court. There were a lot of printers working around here, weren't there? I mean, this is like Fleet Street. This remains the centre of that industry. But what was special about Strong? Yeah, I mean, I should say actually that. We all think immediately, when you say Fleet Street, you think immediately of the printing industry. It was a great, um, you know, they always used to say in the the 20th century that when people would sit in the pubs in the afternoon, when they turned the presses on, you could hear the kind of, like the the machines going and everything would bounce and vibrate and that that excitement and things. But back in the uh, 1700s, it was... It began as really being a place of artisans and um, there would be small tradesmen, watchmakers and the instrument makers, the you know, the kind of little contraptions and the hatters and people like that, they would be around here. The princes were moving over from St Paul's Church churchyard and Paternoster Row, which is where the old centre of the medieval uh, printing trade was. The strong came here just north of Fleet Street. Um, and he was an incredible character. He started off um, in, in Edinburgh. His first name was William Strachan, but he anglicised his name to Strawn so he could fit in. There's a lot of anti-Scotch prejudice back in those days. And um, yeah, he, he was a very hardworking, very shrewd, very diligent, quite perceptive. He knew how to take risks. He was good at making contacts. All of these things in the very perilous world of 
18th century business where you could fail very, very easily. There was no safety nets. There were no, um, well, and he didn't have any family to help him out. He just had his little network of uh, other Scottish migrants to maybe send a bit of work his way. Anyway, he, he started here in about 1740. And um, he actually has the most fascinating connection with the birth of the United States of America. Very unlikely um, thing, but I'll tell you the story because it's worth it's worth telling in full. Because very soon after he started here, a young Philadelphian walked into his printing shop. That Philadelphian was called James Reed, and they had a conversation. They both got on, they both swapped contact details, and James Reed went away. And he went back to Philadelphia. James Reed happened to be a next door neighbour of Benjamin Franklin. And a few years later, through a process that I won't go into in full detail, Franklin ended up sending Strawn a letter. Because Franklin was established by this point. Everyone knew that he was a man on the up in Philadelphia. But what Franklin really, really wanted was a contact in London. Because this would make his business much more profitable. It would give him access to a whole different spectrum of writers than those that were available in the in the colonies, and um, and Strawn was a perfect person for Franklin because they were a similar age. Franklin was a bit older, but they were both self-made characters. They both started off with nothing. Um, they shared a political outlook. They believed in Whiggish principles of expansion and projects and trade and things like this. And um, and yeah, so we can. I've got one of um, Strawn's very first letters to Franklin. I'll see if I can find it here. So Franklin writes to Straw, this is I think in 1744, I've long wanted a friend in London whose judgment I could depend on to send me from time to time such pamphlets as are worth reading on any subject, religious titles and controversies accepted. Um, so that was the one thing he, he wasn't yeah. interested in was anything to do with religious yeah. controversies, but... Franklin, but everything else. Franklin, yeah, politics. Franklin had this great breadth of interest, but he really was. I mean, he'd grown up in Puritan New England, and I think that was enough religion for him. <laughs> that he famously, the, the the longest stretch of church going he managed was six Sundays successively, which was, uh, which was, I think, um, something he put into his autobiography. Uh, Strawn, he's not a very religious fan. A character as well, Strawn, as far as I can um, make out. They were much more, if they belonged to any church, it was a church of capitalism or early capitalism, this idea of accumulating wealth. And you can see there Franklin is, is trying to make, it's a bit like a, I suppose, the 18th century equivalent of a LinkedIn request or something that, that, um, that Franklin <laughs> yeah. is, is sending to Strawn. Or ordering something off the internet, you know, send me a oh. supply of... All the latest publications. And, and Strawn, actually, so to Franklin and later to Franklin's successor, um, Strawn sent so many books, so many pamphlets. I think one scholar calculated it as something about £18,000 worth of books. And books were incredibly valuable items back then. You can imagine the, the peril of putting them into these ships and sending them across the Atlantic. Anything could go wrong. Yeah. certainly wasn't Amazon Prime if I'm going to keep um, they, they, these books could, uh, could be lost very easily and, um, and so that personal connection was really important you had to trust the person was going to send the money back and, and, yeah. and all the rest of it yeah. and did they meet in person? I mean Franklin did come to London several times didn't he? Franklin came to London well he was in London for three spells the first when he was a young, um, young man at the age of 20 he came he, he latterly came in 1757 when he was older, more substantial in, in body as well as bank balance <laughs> character. He came and he was uh, then really acting almost as, as an ambassador, an agent for uh, Philadelphia. And when he gets here, he's been having this, this kind of correspondence with Strawn for years by this point. They've, they're pen friends. Their, their relationship has really extended just beyond just being um, the business partners they are they are really like kind of on a wavelength of a mind and they meet and they they're just such such good friends and uh, they play cribbage together they sit in front of the fire and discuss politics they they go to the house of commons to watch the debates and 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 when franklin has to go back to philadelphia in 1762 i think it was strawn is heartbroken because he feels like he's met this person who is so 
like himself. Kind of soulmate. A soulmate, but but a better version mm-hmm. of him because he realised that Franklin's just possesses these these traits of character which are so far beyond what he has. And he's a very impressive person himself, but Franklin really is out there. And um, he writes about Franklin really quite movingly. Their relationship does progress. I mean, they they stay very close. After the, the, the return of Franklin in, in 1764, I, 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 the, their friendships resumed. So Franklin lives at the other end of the Strand, so not far away from here. Um, and they come up, by this point, Strawn has moved from Wine Office Court, which is just here where we are, slightly further away, just uh, another 30, 30 seconds, a minute or so. And um, they continue to be uh, business partners, political agitators, plotters. Um, by this point, Strawn has become very much like a Rupert Murdoch character. He mm. has interests in the media. If if a writer wants to get published, they, they go to Strawn. So he publishes... Gibbon and Adam Smith and David Hume and 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 all these these great characters, and yeah, it's 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 a really affecting friendship. But they fall out in 1775 spectacularly about the the revolution because they find themselves on opposite sides. Right. So after all these years of talking about politics and seeing eye to eye, something changes. Something big changes when it comes to politics. They find yeah. themselves. And you can trace, in a way, that the American Revolution is quite a difficult thing to understand because it's a, it's a revolution of, of ideas in, in many senses. But it's, it's about, I suppose, a different conception of what the world should be. Franklin decides that the colonies have grown to the point that they need to have autonomy. Mm. But what, what kind of autonomy is that going to be? And I suppose Franklin's idea evolves from being controlled to Westminster. He sees something that's more like a commonwealth, where they might keep the king, but they'll have political autonomy to do what they want. Strawn's idea is is more rigid. He doesn't believe that the colonies who've been brought up and um, nourished, if you want to put it in those terms, by, by Britain, should then just scurry away as soon as they have enough money and people of their own, that they have some duty of allegiance and in their letters, you can see this quarrel progressing and developing over the years. It's a really fascinating study for students of the revolution. But it's, they find themselves on, on separate sides. And I'm going to quote to you this letter, which is often used in, uh, in histories of the revolution. And um, this is written by Franklin to Strawn in July of 1775. And by this point, Franklin's returned to Philadelphia. He's joined the Continental Congress. And um, he's just received the news of the Battle of Bunker Hill. He sits down and he writes, Mr. Strawn, Philadelphia, July 5th, 1775. You are a member of Parliament and one of that majority which has doomed my country to destruction. You've begun to burn our towns and murder our people. Look upon your hands! Exclamation mark. They're stained with the blood of your relations, exclamation mark. You and I were long friends. You are now my enemy and I am yours. Be Franklin. It's uh, such a powerful letter. Mm, Exactly. It's much quoted, yeah. Yeah. And then what happened with this letter? Well, Franklin, in typical Franklinian style, doesn't send it. He didn't. No, he didn't. And so Strawn may never ever have read the words I just quoted to you, which um, in a way is what history most remembers him for, because that's how he appears as the as the archetypal Tory member of parliament who is passing these coercive laws against the colonies. Strawn and Franklin's friendship, I have to say, does... It does survive, but it's never quite the same. Should we put it in those terms? I can imagine, yeah, Yeah. after something like that. They're they're very much opponents Mm. in the war. But they decide they're not going to talk about politics. Politics becomes a banned uh, subject for them. They never meet again, but they do have this this correspondence which comes, comes up again. He deserves to be remembered as much for his accomplishments in business as, as for this um, political and um, personal relationship he had with Franklin. He died 
with a fortune of £100,000. And Johnson said that his was... Vast by the standards of those days. Yeah. yeah. Johnson said that his was the greatest printing house in London. Hello there, it's Peter here and it's time for the latest news from Ace Cultural Tours. Now, a few weeks ago, you might have listened to my conversation with Andrew Spira, who's one of Ace's tour guides. He was telling me about some of the great art of the High Renaissance in the year 1500. If that's a subject that interests you and you'd like to find out a little bit more today, then Ace have an array of brilliant art tours coming up over the weeks and months ahead. In July, for instance, there's one setting out to explore the art and landscapes of Switzerland. And then closer to home, there's another on the art collections and stately homes of the West Country. Then in August, they have a tour which is investigating the art of Constable in Gainsborough in Suffolk. If you're after something a little bit different, then why not head off to Hamburg with Ace to discover the history of the Hanseatic League? Or you could relax at the Verona Opera Festival or feel the wind in your hair on a tour to wild and ancient Orkney. I think that that's the one that I would go for. Find the tour that's perfect for you at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Holidays for the culturally curious. After finishing up in the Cheshire Cheese, we climbed the stairs and came out next to Strawn's old place on Wine Office Court. Mazing through the alleyways for 30 seconds or so, we reached a really important landmark in English literary history. This was number 17 Gough Square, the house in which the writer Samuel Johnson had lived during the most demanding and fascinating portion of his life. Johnson is another of the characters I write about in Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness. In his day, he was fiercely opposed to the American patriots and he wrote fiery polemics against the resolves of the Continental Congress. But despite this, Johnson was someone who Americans listened to. From Jefferson right down to today, he's found readers in the United States because I think he offers a cautionary voice against the prevailing progressive culture. As such, there was plenty for me to tell Sarah about as we entered Johnson's house. As well as happiness, America and writing, I wanted to tell her about Johnson's touching relationship with Francis Barber, the ex-slave from Jamaica who came to live at Gough Square when he was just a boy in 1752. We were lucky enough to be allowed inside to record in the parlour where we found a portrait that's suspected to show Francis Barber gazing down upon us. So where are we now? Well, I'm overflowing with excitement because we've managed to get inside Johnson's house. Thank you very much to the curators who've let us very kindly record in here. We are in um, a ground floor room looking out onto the square. We're surrounded by these 18th century portraits. It's just a fascinating space. It's an 18th century drawing room with those those wonderful panel walls and uh, we've got Francis Barber who's over there um, looking down on us um, in particular Johnson's behind me there's a, oh, there's a kind of chandelier up it's not quite a chandelier it's a chandelierish light maybe a bit more plain than that but yeah we're here in 17 Gough Square um, and I have to say this has got to be probably one of my favourite places in London. It's quite a room, isn't it? So it is quite a room. And Francis Barber, Samuel Johnson, they both lived here. It was it was a house actually quite full of people, I think, wasn't it? Didn't Johnson yeah. live here with quite a lot of people that were friends or he was <laughs> yeah. sort of took under his wing in various Absolutely. ways? Well, Johnson, there was a great expression that Johnson used to take people who were out of the common run under his wing. Yeah. Um, so Francis Barber, for people who don't, don't know, is an ex-slave born in Jamaica, um, and he came here in this extraordinary story. He arrived here in 1752 as an eight or nine-year-old boy, and Johnson took him in shortly after his wife, Tetty, had died. And um, I always think of that moment as being hugely touching because in, in the loss of his wife, he in a way becomes a father because that's mm. the relationship that almost exists between Barber and Johnson and, and afterwards mm. Barber remains with Johnson for the rest of Johnson's life. He becomes Johnson's heir. Johnson leaves him with mm-hmm. uh, an annuity of £70 a year. I'm well off on Francis Barber here but he's a, he's a fascinating character because he links Johnson to um, the Americas and I'll use that term quite broadly. It's mm. not America as we might think of it today. It's the United States of America but 
In the European or the British mind at the time, you often see the word America being widely applied. I've seen it actually applied to India before as well as America. So it shows yeah. how sketchy people's ideas of geography were at the time. Well, that's, uh, a, that's a nice reversal of the fact that like the West Indies are called that because yeah. Columbus thought that he'd discovered India by yeah. going over to where, in fact, the Americas are. So... But, a, but like, I like the idea of that being reversed. It is, it is reversed. But I think what's so um, nice to be here, well, to have this opportunity to be inside the house and to be talking about um, Johnson and Barber is his attitude towards America mm. generally. And this is one thing that I really wanted to engage with in the book because one of the things, I, I, it's just fascinated me mm. for ages, that Johnson was the greatest critic of the American um, patriots, as they were called at the time. He used to really hold forth against the Bostonians. He'd complain about them, these Samuel Adams types. He didn't have much time for Franklin, who we were talking about before. Um, They really uh, kept away from each other, even though they might well have admired each other. In 1775, right on the cusp of revolution, Johnson produces this pamphlet called Taxation No Tyranny, which is um, the most brutal denunciation of the American Continental Congress, um, which ends with this this um, really famous line, which is, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? And that's, you know, you can imagine people like Thomas Jefferson reading this with his all his slaves at Monticello, for example. Mm. But... Yeah. At the same time, Johnson wrote for years and years and years about this idea of happiness. And um, this was also something that obviously the founders in America were really mm-hmm. interested in to creating a happier, better society. So it's the pursuit of happiness. Which um, is a phrase that Johnson used five is, times. Yeah, right, yes, that actually comes from. Is it Rasselas? It was in, it appears in the dictionary, oh, right. in the Rambler, mm-hmm. in Rasselas, in a pamphlet called The False Alarm. And I think also in The Idler, which was another of his periodicals. And it's really interesting to think of that line, the pursuit of happiness. So what was Johnson's own relationship to happiness? I always get the feeling that he wasn't a very happy person. Exactly. And I think that's why it meant so much to him, Mm. that he found it so elusive, that he was always striving towards this idea of happiness. And I think in that we can find out why he was so sceptical of the, um, the the patriots in America because his ideas about happiness were really to do with duties and um, maybe having modest virtues and in the not my idea of happiness <laughs> <laughs> exactly but in, in a lot of the people who undertook what he called the hazard of sailing to the new world okay he saw that as an unnecessary hazard, okay? You're going mm. to leave your the safety of your parish and your families and you're going to go across the Atlantic to, to begin a new life. How is that going to make you happy? That's what Johnson would have said. You're risking too much um, to have any any real hope. And he one of his real insights and a line of his, which I just love, is that he wrote that the natural flights of the human mind are not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope. Mm. And this captures this idea of, of the, the human spirit being a little bit that we trick ourselves, that we, be, we believe our dreams more than we should, which is a very Johnsonian idea. And so he thought of Americans very much as these slightly flighty people who were a little bit untrustworthy. I know there's this, um, this, this phrase of Horace's, which he always came back to, which is that they changed the, their sky, not their soul, who rush across the sea you know mm. it's like however far you go you can never get away from yourself that's how you might and yet say. he did come down to London didn't he from I mean it's not like he stayed in his birthplace himself exactly. Johnson and um, um, but yeah I mean it's it, it's very so the yeah, whole idea of the American dream I mean you you have that's a great line about dreams mm. and in a way that's a great founding myth in America of, of the dream, the American dream, the kind of dream of... Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely public, right to, yeah. to point out yeah. Johnson's contradictions mm. because he, he used to rail against people living their life in what he called mm. idea or living with a great heightened sense of the future world 
And yet he spent all these years writing a dictionary, which is the most hopeful, ridiculous, hubristic project you can imagine. But that's what makes him interesting, is that he was full of contradictions, I think. I think yeah. so. And, and you probably know this from, from your own work, when, you, mm. when you get these, these big thinkers, whoever they may, may be, they often tend to act in opposition to what they write. Do you find that? Yeah, oh, definitely. You know, the more they do it, the more interesting they are to write about biographically, aren't they? Mm. Because it's the... It's the mystery of human nature that we all mm. we all wrestle with. I um, think so. The thing with Johnson, I think, makes him quite relevant to people today, is that he had this suspicion of big projects, and among big projects, he thought of things that might be to do with science or that might be to do with literature. He used to write a lot about writers setting off on big schemes, just like himself, of course, but how. Um, how they were basically setting themselves up for disappointment. But also, the other thing that he wrote about quite memorably was anti-imperialism, because he would say that, right. well, you might be, to, to think about us going to America, um, you might be risking your own happiness. But there's another part to that equation as well. What about the people who already live there? Mm. You're going to displace them. What yeah. are they going to do? And mm. there's a great, well, there's a great many instances in his writing where he comes back to this point again and again and again. And as I say, that just brings us back to Francis Barber, who, so a lot of people would think, as I said before, right, that this idea of the world being an exciting, enticing place in the 18th century, lots of people thought about it in the abstract as a place where money could be made. For Johnson, he had this young boy who'd been displaced from his parents, from his native culture, um, he'd been brought here with nothing. I think Barber was a symbol for him of the kind of havoc, that's a very Johnsonian mm. word, that could be wreaked by projects just being, you know, kind of let out of control. And in, in a way, mm. we're reckoning with this still, aren't we, with the, with the breakdown of empire 250 mm. years later. Johnson and Strawn, they had a close relationship, didn't they? They well? absolutely did. It's a brilliant question and um, a good one to, to mention at this point. So if we just do the geography, we walked up from where Wine Office Court was and it took us, I'd say, about 40 seconds. And there's no, no time at all. Mm. Here we are um, in Johnson's house where the dictionary was written. So Strawn became Johnson's printer for the dictionary. And this physical proximity, in fact, Strawn actually moved over that way, but only the same distance again. Um, this physical proximity was absolutely vital because the dictionary was such a humongous project mm. that they couldn't have the whole thing set in type in one go or, or would have used up all of the type in London. So they had to recycle the type as they went. Okay. So there had to be this really good communication that went back and forth. That's one part of, of it. The other thing was that Johnson was such a chaotic character. I mean, he got up late, he went to, uh, went to bed late, he was often behind mm. and he was having some catastrophe in his personal or private life, whatever. Um, Strawn was the opposite. He was very organised and he, in a way, I think, became what you might imagine to be a proto-literary agent. We have these agents today who keep us in line. Um, and right. that's really that's what Strawn, yeah. Strawn did for Johnson. He used to collect money for, for, for him from the booksellers because there was a consortium mm. of booksellers who were, um, who were paying for the dictionary. And he'd give it to Johnson, but he wouldn't give it all in one go because he knew that <laughs> that was a bad idea. <laughs> so Johnson would have his little piecemeal payments. And there's actually, I have to say, one of the um, most revealing letters that goes between Johnson and um, Strawn happens in 1759 when Johnson's um, mother dies and this is one of the events that Johnson really looked on with terror he was just terrified mm. of this and he was traveling back to Litchfield and um, he had to come up with some it's a great literary story this actually he had to come up with an idea or some funds to pay for his mother's funeral so he, he decides he's going to write a novella and this novella mm. is Rasselas and the, the story is, yeah. um, so Rasselas, for those of you who don't know, is this magical short. It, it's published at a very similar time to Candide and mm. Voltaire's work on 
Um, it's a sort I, of philosophical fable. Yeah, exactly. But this restless is all about happiness and how elusive happiness is. And the more this kind of paradox, the more we chase it, the further it goes away, a bit like a rainbow or something. But anyway, the story is that um, Johnson wrote it over the evenings of one, <laughs> one week or something, which is enough to shame us <laughs> into. But isn't it interesting that, because he's obviously described it that way as almost dismissively, like it didn't, you know, I just th- wrote this really quickly to make some money. But the fact that he was in the middle of that grief and having to organise the funeral and um, and that was when he chose to write about the question of happiness. Yeah, I think, so. I think these are the things that were playing on his mind at the time. I'm going to have to try and... I'll, I'll try and put the, the letter that Johnson writes to Strawn on the website because it's quite revealing in itself and it does capture this moment of composition. We're always interested in mm. where great art comes from and occasionally... Johnson, he could be very indolent and um, he procrastinated so much. One of the great procrastinators in history. But if prodded in the right way, he could he could wear into the most spectacular life. And that's what happened with Rasselas that day. And I think I think he would have still been living in this house at that time. I'm guessing. So mm. he was here between for about a decade between 1749 and no, maybe earlier 1746. I think he came here in 1759. So he was here when he wrote the dictionary, when he wrote those wonderful R- Rambler essays, the Idler essays. His great creative mm. energy, those uh, moral works like the Vanity of Human Wishes were all were all written in this yeah, house, which right is an ex- here, yeah. exactly. Hope some of it rubs off. Where is he? He must be looking at us. Yeah. <laughs> he is. He's up up right there. <laughs> One of the things that I find really touching about Johnson is that he's so, you know, he tells everybody what to think. He says, depend upon it, sir. You know, you, this is, and he, he's so authoritative and such a big booming voice figure telling everybody what to think. And he's very uh, patrician in his way of delivering his opinions. And at the same time, he comes across as a really vulnerable character mm-hmm. with his, um, you know, sort of, his doubts and his emotional crises and his a certain kind of psychological fragility I always I always yeah. think and yeah. and that's yeah that's I think it. as well that 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 term black dog which mm. we associate with Churchill talking about depression mostly mm. that's from Johnson as well Johnson. that idea mm. of one of the I think one of when people read about him one of the um, images often sticks is one I think that comes from Boswell when he he described Johnson as seeing himself as a gladiator in the Colosseum and his imagination was the enemy it would come out and prey upon him and he'd have to fortify it's the ultimate Mm. stoic kind of picture isn't it really he had to fortify himself and stave off danger all the time fighting against demons we'd probably say now he had his demons exactly but when it comes to Johnson and America which is the thing that really um just fascinated me so much was you know that he was so rude about the patriots he was so aggressively opposed to any idea of independence and uh, he had such a low opinion of americans but if you look today his papers are in yale his greatest um biographers are generally americans he's you know he he is there and he's very appealing to lots of american readers today i know one of the chief mm. justices of, of the supreme court used to read the vanity of human wishes every year in in wow. america just to fortify themselves and i think I, I, and it did always i did always wonder why that was and i think in a way it's, he does speak to americans quite strongly as a as a kind of cautionary voice because for all of the enthusiasm all of the projects all of that freewheeling buccaneering spirit that you might find on the West Coast or the East Coast or wherever in, in, in the States today. I think there's always that little Johnsonian voice mm. saying, just take care because things might not always go to plan. Yeah, uh, there's, and speaking of his sort of how he was rude to the Americans, there's that great story I think you tell in the book of, I suppose it comes from Boswell, where somebody, an American, came to dinner and Johnson was incredibly rude to him and said, well, you don't even read books over there to which whoever it was replied well of course I've read we do read The Rambler which was Johnson's production and Johnson was immediately mollified oh right (laughs) so that's okay you read my books then I think just the the whole idea of Johnson in America is such a rich there's also that classical 
Johnson was following a classical ideal in many ways, wasn't he? Like you mentioned, you know, Horace and the kind of Ciceronian classical ideal, which was also really appealed to a lot of the founding fathers, I think, didn't mm, it? So yeah. I guess there's a connection there. Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, I've written about this separately, but just Johnson and Jefferson. Mm. For all that Jefferson didn't like Johnson, he knew what he thought politically. They were completely on the opposite sides of the argument. Jefferson, he, he always read Johnson. And there's a sense of mm. him not liking him, but like having that grudging respect. Mm. He likes to know what he's thinking. So when even when he goes to Paris and later on when he goes back to Monticello, he writes about Johnson a lot in his, mm. um, in his dictionary. Johnson's always there in Jefferson's mind, but not always as the welcome guest. And I think it's that thing where, if you look back at that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, mm. you can see a bit of Johnson in it. I think it's a pursuit, but it's not a guarantee. And that's an important distinction. It is, yeah, yeah. We were recording this episode on an English summer's day, so it will surprise none of you to hear that the wind had picked up and the rain was pattering down by the time that we left Gough Square. Nearby, though, there was a statue that I really, really wanted to show Sarah. Situated near the bottom of Fetter Lane, it showed the old populist hero, John Wilkes. Now, not many people remember John Wilkes today, but he's a fascinating character with lots of contemporary relevance. Ten years before the start of the American Revolution, he upended British politics with a staggering insurgent campaign against the establishment. Wilkes's claim was that a tyrannical group of politicians was scheming to strip the British people of their ancient liberties. And the more the authorities tried to quieten him, the more his claims looked plausible and the more support he gained. Wilkes's battle in Britain was followed obsessively by those in the American colonies. In him, people identified their own struggles. I told Sarah a little bit more about this. So where are we now? Well, we've had a bit of a detour because uh, the rain has started. It's a bit windy. So where I was originally intending to take you is a, is a bit loud, to be honest. So we've come around the corner. We're quite near Fetter Lane. And what I really wanted to show you, which we've just walked past, is a statue of a man called John Wilkes. So who was John Wilkes? It's incredible that we don't really know who John Wilkes is today, that he doesn't immediately send um, bells ringing in our minds because he was one of the biggest political characters of his age in the mid-18th century. In the 1860s, he really, really did upend British politics um, in the same kind of way that Donald Trump upended American politics over the past decade or so. So to say, to say that you don't know who... Um, John Wilkes is, is almost a bit like someone in the year 2400 saying they don't know who Donald Trump is. Which, which maybe they won't. So <laughs> which maybe they won't. Maybe that's a, an idea which is quite um, appealing to some of us. But um, yeah, Wilkes was, um, he started off as quite an anonymous and run-of-the-mill MP. But in uh, 1763, he got into terrible, terrible trouble with the ruling um, governmental party through um, this kind of satirical newspaper that he was writing, which is called The North Britain. And um, basically, this North Britain was a bit like the Have I Got News For You of the day. And um, he ended up offending the prime minister of the day, a man called Lord Bute, and he ended up getting um, prosecuted for a seditious libel. He was branded an outlaw and he had to escape to Paris where he lived in exile and then later on in Italy on the, on the continent. But really, Wilkes's story starts here in the city of London where he had his great power base. He was hugely popular among the small tradespeople and he really stood for a kind of, I suppose, subversive, radical kind of politics which was different to the status quo. Why did he upset the uh, powers that be quite so much? What was his argument all about? Well, the thing that he's most remembered for is this great cry of Wilkes and Liberty. This was a cry that was echoed across the streets of Georgian London at the time. It was a slogan that was painted on doorways and it just became synonymous with the politics of the time. Um, Wilkes really identified with this idea that um, Britain was a land of liberty and 
his great argument was that it was being um, taken over by a tyrannical cabal of malevolent politicians, if you can imagine such a thing. And so um, in his North Britain journal, the one that I spoke about before, he, he kind of really played on this theme of there was a new king, George III, a very unpopular prime minister, the favourite Lord Bute, and that they were trying to take away the privileges of uh, what it meant to be a Briton. So week after week, he would bring out new material. And yeah, this is what brought him trouble, but also brought him huge popularity. And what did they make of him looking on from America? What was the American perspective on everything that was going on. Well, I think this is one of the things that I most enjoyed writing about because Wilkes has been a known character in British history for such a long time. But really one thing that hasn't been explored in any great detail is what his reputation was in the um, in the American colonies. And um, if you go and have a look at the, the American newspapers in, in the years 16, uh, sorry, in the years 1763 onwards, throughout the rest of the decade, Wilkes is a huge story. He's there week after week after week. And really he becomes synonymous with their own worries about liberty because they had this sense with the taxes that were being levied by the British government, famously the Stamp Act, and then um, after that the Townsend duties, that there was a form of tyrannical government that was being imposed upon them in the colonies, which was quite similar to what Wilkes was saying was happening to him. He was a freeborn Englishman and they were coming after him trying to... Um, trying to turn him into some kind of vassal of almost like he was a you know a subject of the French crown or something mm. like that um, so yeah he he really became an identification point for them and there was I suppose great uh, in one moment in 1768 Wilkes had this this moment where after being an outlaw after being chased out of the kingdom he came back and managed to um, to get elected as an MP. So this would be a situation, again, there's a similarity with Trump here. Imagine if Trump was elected president next year, despite all of these criminal, criminal charges that are being laid against him. This is kind of what happened to Wilkes. So he, he caused a real stir in that people didn't know what his legal position was. He had a status as an MP, but he was also an outlaw. He was also a bankrupt. He was also a debtor and um, a blasphemer and, and all, the, all the rest of this. So he eventually got into Parliament, but was he still a rebel then? I mean, what did he, what did he, he stand he was, for once he got into Parliament? He, well, he was a, simultaneously, he was in prison in the King's Bench, uh, in the King's Bench prison and a member of Parliament. But that didn't last for very long because there was all these um, debates within Parliament decided they he couldn't actually be an MP. And this was one of these yeah, great um, problem of his status. But more than the legal wrangles, more than um, his personality, which I can say a bit more about in a moment, it was just what he became as a symbol. Um, Wilkes and Liberty really, really did mean something to the Americans because in them they just, in what him they identified a cause. Liberty was the big that was it's such a powerful word isn't it yeah the sons of liberty is how um lots of people think of that phrase connected with boston and samuel adams and later on with the um the boston tea party but it's quite interesting to see that the people if you go back to 1768 in london when he had this election that i was just talking about a moment ago the people who voted for him the little freeholders the tradespeople, this is where he got his support from they also referred to themselves as Sons of Liberty, which has kind of been forgotten by history a little bit, but there were Sons of Liberty within the city of London, um, as well as over in the American colonies. It does all sound a little bit uh, Trumpian. It makes you think of these um, sort of libertarians, as we would now call them, like it's become a different thing. Do you think that the seeds of it lay? I'm visualizing, you know, this guy with his shaman, horns standing yeah. you know, in the seat of power. Oh, in the middle of the capital. Yeah. yeah. Was that, was that, is that the kind of image we should have of Wilkes or was he a bit more of a quirky character than that? Well, I could say a few things about Wilkes's appearance, which didn't, he didn't have many horns, that's for sure. <laughs> but, he, but he did have um, quite a striking appearance. He was famously known as um, a very ugly man. Mm. Um, 
and he embraced this sugglyness in a way because he had a big lantern jaw, he had a, an eye which pointed slight, slightly disconcertingly inwards, he walked with a strange gait, and um, he'd lost quite a number of his teeth. So this was all before the age of 40, so he was quite a striking physical presence. Um, he didn't in the least seem to mind about this, I have to say. He, he kind of embraced mm. what, what it was that, that he was. Um, his enemies, so for example, the, um, the artist Hogarth, really went to lengths to exploit this idea of him being a slightly deranged figure physically, but also in character. Um, so he didn't have any horns like the, um, the, the chap who went into the Capitol building, but in that kind of popularist in that kind of populist uprising that happened um, in January 2021, mm. it's complete parallels with what was happening in London in the in the 1760s, where you have a sense among the general populace that the government is just um, subverting what the country should be. Out of touch. That they're out of touch. Whatever, that there's yeah. some you know mm. dangerous force. And that they have a duty, moral duty, to protect their country by rising up. And the Wilkes riots um, of 1768 were huge. They like, kind of enveloped most of London where we are now. Um, but they all do come back to the city of London where he had this great power base, I suppose. It's interesting that he's not better remembered either in America or in the UK mm. because it's a name that we know a bit about him. He's kind of a figure of history. There's not a great, well, until you're very much um, <laughs> reviving him as a parallel for Attempting our to. modern times. And that's, and that's fascinating. What did Samuel Johnson think of him? I'm curious to know. Well, Johnson just loathed the whole idea of Wilkes. <laughs> Everything that he stood for was opposite to what he believed in. He believed in um, people having a sense of duty to their community, to um, sense of structure within society. This idea of living in a, you know, a settled framework under one Christian God. <laughs> Wilkes, Wilkes was a libertine who lived this epicurean idea of um, earthly pleasures, but he took it much further than that. It wasn't the, the, the benign pleasures of of life that he was after. He really liked the sensual. He, I mean, in the 1960s, Wilkes would have been completely at home with that slightly hedonistic, um, countercultural mm. scene, which blew up. So Johnson disdained all of this when he saw the riots that were um, that were making a, a great chaos in London. He thought that this was a sign of a society falling apart because it had lost its moral fibre. So all of those high ideals of, uh, uh, of Johnson met the, the populist politics of, of Wilkes. So why did Wilkes do all of that? What was he looking to achieve? That's a very interesting question, and it's one that's divided scholars for a very long time. You, if you take Wilkes as his word, he was someone who was sacrificing their own life and happiness in the greater cause of, um, of English liberty, that he, you know, he saw um, this tyrannical cabal that I talked about earlier on, malevolent politicians who were um, pulling this idea of the English constitution, this thing that was so important and made Britain a different kind of country to um, the nations on the continent. He was, he was standing up for all of that and it was under, under attack. If you were more cynical though, you might say that Wilkes uh, was someone who, won, who, who spent money too much. He got himself into terrible debt. He was trying to find a way to make himself um, both relevant and also financially independent once again. And he he started off on this crusade that brought him a degree of celebrity and he really just rolled with it. And again, the-, the Sounds familiar again. <laughs> yeah, I know, it does, doesn't it? And this is why um, I, I do think this this story of him, I mean, he I should also say that he, he was very much branded as number 45, um, not only because the year 1745 was synonymous with rebellion of Bonnie, Prince Charlie, and people thought of that. But the the issue of the North Britain that really brought him trouble was number 45. Uh, that was the one that, um, in which he, he basically accused King George 
um, okay. of, of lying, which was yeah. one step too far at that time. And then you notice today that Trump is the 45th president. You, you, you find an uncanny echo. Well, I mean, if you pursue that too far, you end up with a kind of deep state uh, conspiracy plot uh, so. theory of your own. So I don't know. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, uh, it's fun to compare. But then there's this moment. Um, it's so funny when you, when you see how um, opponents can be brought together. There's this moment in 1776, which is quite famous in, in Boswell's um, account of Johnson's life, where he engineers this meeting between the two great opponents and they end up having a lunch. And, and, and Boswell really brings jo Johnson to this dinner under false pretenses. And when Johnson realizes that Wilkes is there, he's completely disarmed and has a, an almost a panic attack in the room at the time. What transpires though is quite, um, comic because um, Johnson ends up sitting next to Wilkes. Wilkes mollifies Johnson with a bit of gravy and then a bit of squeezing of so orange over the meat. Charming and, him and sort he of dancing him, attendance yeah. on him. I mean, Wilkes always used to say that he could um, he could talk away his face in half an hour. That was one of his famous claims. He was referring to women when he said that, but he he seemed to have a similar space of time for Johnson it as well. It worked on Johnson too. It did work on Johnson too. I mean, Johnson, I think, was quite um, amenable to flattery, I get the impression. He does seem to be, he does seem time. to be susceptible to, to flattery. And um, and Boswell's account of this this evening is, is really quite funny because by the end of it, they, they're the best of friends um, and they they walk out into the London night and they're both making jokes about the Scottish and so Wilkes was very rude about the Scottish and uh, Johnson right so that's one thing that brought them together but so, uh, and they were also I mean I should say that Wilkes was a great he was a great classicist he was very clever he knew Shakespeare very well as well he, he understood the importance of the arts and um, I think they bonded over that love of the mm. classics and literature just to bring this back to Wilkes and America, it, it, it's really strange that he's not so well known today. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, you have a, um, a place called Wilkes Bar, which is named after him. Um, lots of Americans also think of uh, John Wilkes Booth, who um, famously assassinated Abraham Lincoln. I think there's a connection there as well. But what they saw in the 1760s, 1770s, was someone who was fearless, who was standing up to power, who was championing the cause of liberty, which was their own cause. Mm. It's, it's really interesting to think about how that played upon the revolutionary narrative. Would there have been a revolution in quite the same way at quite the same time without Wilkes? What would have happened if Wilkes had travelled to America? He was invited to go to Boston. And he never did go. And he never he? did. And I always think Thomas Paine, who obviously did go to America very famously, was the one who took the radical politics of Wilkes, the writing style, that, that fearlessness, which he'd learnt from the politics of the 1760s with him. And so our little walking tour came to an end. Strawn, Johnson and Wilkes are three of the six major characters that I write about in Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness. The other three are Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine and Catherine McCauley. If you'd like to find out more about this book, and I really hope that you do, please visit my own website at peter-more.co.uk, where you can find more descriptions along with all of the latest reviews. This is a nice way for me to round off this sixth season of Travels Through Time. It's time for us to have a break. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to our interviews, which are always great fun to record. My thanks to my fellow presenters, Violet and Artemis, to Maria, our producer, and to the wonderful people at Ace Cultural Tours for such brilliant support. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening. From me, for now, that's it. Goodbye.